Hi, and welcome to Conversations to Connect. I'm Fenella Hawksley, and this podcast is brought to you in collaboration with the Campaign to End Loneliness. Social isolation and loneliness are widespread and can have a huge impact on health, happiness, and overall well-being. All people of all ages need connections that matter, and on this podcast, we will be hosting conversations to share insights, knowledge, and research to inspire change and to help people feel more connected. On today's episode, we're joined by Eddie Elmer to discuss marginalization and loneliness in the LGBTQ community. Despite the birth of the global gay rights movement, the LGBTQ community still suffer from marginalization and a risk of increased loneliness. Belonging to a sexual minority is a risk factor for loneliness and LGBTQ people are more likely to experience loneliness compared to their heterosexual peers. Eddie Elmer is a researcher and consultant in ageing and mental health, focusing on loneliness in marginalised groups such as sexual minority seniors, ageing inmates and parolees. Eddie is completing his PhD in social gerontology, studying minority stress and loneliness in the LGBTQ community across the lifespan. Eddie, thank you so much for joining me. It's the morning in Vancouver, am I right? Have you just got up? So thank you. (laughs) It is. It's it's 11am. Yes, I... How are you? Doing well. How are you? I'm good. So the first question I wanted to ask you was, when did you first start researching the link between marginalization and loneliness in among sexual minorities? I know like loneliness is something I've always been interested in for many, many years, like when I started my undergraduate. And I know like in many of my conversations with, with people who are struggling with problems like depression, I've noticed that often what's causing, what seems to be causing their depression is this never-ending sense of loneliness. And it's definitely something I've seen among sexual minorities. And I wanted to sort of understand some of the reasons why. And I knew there were various social demographic reasons why sexual minorities may be lonelier compared to other people. But I also wanted to look at marginalization, or what we also call minority stress. And there's a very, very big literature on the relations between marginalization and outcomes like depression and suicide and anxiety and substance use, but hasn't been very much on loneliness. And so I kind of wanted to explore the links between marginalization and loneliness a little more. And it's interesting, since I started studying this about four or five years ago, there still hasn't been very much research on loneliness in this population. People don't think of it as serious, that it's as serious as something like depression, but we know that loneliness can cause depression. And so, yeah, I started doing research on this using a very large sample from around the world to try to explore these uh, links a little further. When you say marginalization, do you mean being in a group that is not the majority? Marginalization, like also call that minority stress, and that's considered to be the result of being a minority who is stigmatized. So minority stress is sort of the everyday stress of dealing with having a stigmatized identity. And then because of stigma, people are marginalized. And there's various forms of marginalization, like discrimination, harassment, rejection Mm -hmm. by your peers and family members, certain violence, unfortunately, and also more subtle things like microaggressions. In my research, I collected data on close to 8,000 people from 85 countries around the world. And I asked them about their experiences of various forms of marginalization and their reactions to that, what we call proximal minority stress. 
marginalization is what we call distal stress. So the things that precede our psychological mm -hmm. reactions to that. And then I look to see how those two are linked to a really big concern in the, in the LGBT community, which is social anxiety and also inhibition, and then how that leads mm -hmm. to loneliness. Social anxiety is a well-known risk factor for loneliness, being worried about what other people think about you and being worried about being in social interactions. So if that's a high problem amongst the LGBTQ community, then that's also another reason why there could be a higher risk of loneliness. We know, and certainly, you know, a campaign to end loneliness about the strong links between social anxiety and loneliness. I mean, in an obvious sense, if you're anxious, it's harder to talk to people. You don't approach people. You might withdraw. And of course, the more withdrawn you become, uh, the more socially anxious mm -hmm. you become and you get this never ending sort of cycle of, of loneliness. And I think you did a great job. There's a report by your group called Psychology of Loneliness. And you did a really good job uh, showing mm -hmm. how it can become cyclical. And I think mm -hmm. social anxiety is a really big element in that. And certainly anxiety is elevated in LGBT people. So I think that goes on to my question of why do you think there is a higher risk of loneliness amongst sexual minorities? There's basically two broad reasons that I see in the literature. And so one of them is just like sociodemographic factors. So just broadly speaking, and there's differences between subgroups, of course, but LGBT people are more likely to be single, living alone, to be without children. And those three things are more common among sexual minority men. They're also more likely to be estranged from their birth families, particularly older people who grew up before the gay liberation movement, and mm -hmm. maybe people who live in more conservative countries, more likely to have sort of poor support and just be isolated in general. And also just a more obvious thing that we often forget, I mean, sexual minorities are a minority. So there's a smaller pool of people from mm -hmm. whom to make friends and, and find partners. So it just it's sort of just a numbers game. It's just harder to meet people and particularly difficult if you are living in like a rural area where there aren't that many LGBT people. And also there's a link between low income and loneliness, low income and LGBT people tend to be on the lower end of the SES spectrum and we know that income is associated in various ways with loneliness one of them just being you know it mm -hmm. takes money to go out and be social and do things and and often you know people who are of low income they're having multiple jobs there's a lot of stress they don't have time to meet other people so mm -hmm. that's the demographic bucket and then we have the minority stress which we talked a little bit about and again just to make clear what that is is sort of the negative consequence of living with a stigmatized identity and as you said despite you know, a lot of advances in LGBT rights around the world and increased acceptance. We do see that stigma is still prevalent um, in some countries more than others, but we even see it in very liberal countries like Canada and, and the Netherlands, even Sweden. Um, there's still that stigma there. Mm -hmm. And there's two, two broad forms of minority stress. And so the big one is what we call the, the distal thing, distal stress, so things that happen in the environment, either recently or could even have happened quite a long time ago. And so this is like discrimination, harassment, violence, uh, family mm -hmm. rejection, and then more subtle things like microaggressions, which I looked at in my, in my research. And then we have proximal mm -hmm. minority stress. So that's the internal psychological reaction to these negative experiences, whether they are recent or past experiences. And we have a few of them. And I examined most of these in my, in my research. And one of them is what we call internalized homonegativity or self-stigma. Some people have called it internalized homophobia, mm -hmm. but we don't use that term anymore. So that's just internalizing society's negative attitudes about uh, 
LGBT people. So disliking yourself because of the stigma in society, right? And you can think about how that would relate to loneliness. Like if you think badly of yourself you, and gay people, you're not going to go and socialize. You're not going to be involved in the LGBT community. There's research to show that people mm -hmm. higher in homo internalized homonegativity have more strained relationships with their uh, romantic partners. Another proximal stressor is concealment. It's kind of an obvious one. Like you're not out of the closet yet because you're afraid of people's reactions, right? And again, you can think of how that would lead to loneliness if you're not out. It's harder to meet to meet other people. People don't know that you're a sexual minority. And then we have expectations of rejection. So because of your negative experiences in the past, you expect people to be rejecting. And often this is a very accurate expectation, particularly if you're in an environment where you know that there are people who are anti-LGBT, you're going to expect to be mm -hmm. rejected. And when you feel that way, you're going to hold back in social situations, you're going to be more anxious. And then we have rejection sensitivity, which is sort of a hypervigilance for, for, for rejection. So you're always on alert that people might possibly be rejecting you. And people who are high in rejection sensitivity, they interpret ambiguous or neutral social situations in a negative way. They make an automatic assumption that someone is treating them badly because they're LGBT, whereas maybe they're not being nice because they're just having a bad day. So they're, they're sort of in, um, interpreting things in a, in a negative way. And that's not very adaptive. And you can see how that would also <laughs> affect our loneliness and, and your ability to connect with people. And then stigma preoccupation, which is more of a cognitive thing, constantly thinking about what other are thinking about you uh, based on your sexual orientation. It's more of a cognitive part of rejection sensitivity. And then there's a third broad minority stressor. It's a newer one that's being researched, and we call that intra-minority stress. So it's the stress within the gay community itself. They're just things like status-seeking, competitiveness, focus on physical appearance and youthfulness, particularly in the, in the gay male community. So those are sort of the three types of minority stress. And I have found links between all of these and loneliness. Yeah, just going on on the internalized stress. And if you perceive the world around you to be a hostile environment, and then that's how you view it, then that further isolates you from connecting with more people, because every social event could be perceived as a negative one. Yeah, as a threatening one. Could you explain some of the risk factors that could be more prevalent in certain subgroups of the LGBTQ community? Well, I've just been doing some research now with my large sample from many countries, and we find some age patterns which are actually quite similar to the general population, so that the highest rates of loneliness appear to be among younger people, and then there's sort of a decline into midlife and into early older age, and then possibly an increase in really older age. And some of the reasons for why younger people seem to be at quite high risk is just because you know, in school they're exposed to more homophobic bullying. They might not be out of the closet yet, so they feel quite isolated. They might still have negative feelings about their sexual orientation or confusion about it. And they're just less likely to actually be involved in the LGBT community for those reasons. Loneliness amongst younger people is a huge problem in general anyway outside of the LGBTQ community because their lives are going through a lot of change. Maybe they're not fully sure of who they are. The other thing I wanted to mention about younger people is that they haven't had as much experience with loneliness and how to cope with mm -hmm. it. And so you and I both know what it's like to be a teenager. 
And when it, whenever you have sort of a bad emotion, you think it's going to last forever. And I think the same thing is with, with loneliness. There's this assumption, I'm going to be lonely forever. I'll never meet anyone. And I think as you get older, you realize that that's not, that's not true. And also when you get older, you just develop better coping skills and emotional regulation. And so those can sort of offset feelings of loneliness. And then with older people, in addition to the usual things which increase loneliness at, at older age, like health problems and mobility problems and loss of spouse and partner, you have people who at the really upper older age range who grew up before the gay liberation movement. And so they experienced, they grew up when being gay was very stigmatized, when it was pathologized, it was considered, that being gay was considered a psychiatric condition, a disease. They were criminalized. And so they've carried all of that with them for uh, a lot of their lives. And, and that could make it more difficult to trust people and to develop intimate relationships. And a lot of them may have, have lived sort of a heterosexual life for most of their lives and they're coming out later in life and, and it can be quite, quite difficult to come out later in life and that can lead to a lot of anxiety and then loneliness. It's interesting that we see that rates of loneliness continue to be highest among younger people. You kind of expect that if we're having these positive social changes, you would see an improvement in younger people. But I, I think what may be happening is, you know, we, there may be greater tolerance of LGBT people, but not, not maybe not enough acceptance of them. Um, and we are seeing in some countries that there's a rollback in LGBT rights. So that's of concern. The other group that's particularly at risk is transgender and, and gender non-conforming people more generally. I think one of the reasons maybe is people make an assumption that they are they are also a lesbian, gay, or bisexual. And they make, particularly make this assumption with men. And then there's also just stigma against gender nonconformity itself. And again, gender nonconformity in men tends to be more stigmatized than it is uh, in women. So they are at greater risk for all of these minority stress processes related to sexual orientation, but also related to their, to their gender identity. And, and we see this in the research that transgender people have the highest rates, not only of loneliness, but also depression, suicide, anxiety, substance use, all of those negative consequences. I know that you've also said that rates of loneliness are higher in the LGBTQ community, but so are other problems such as depression, substance abuse. Why do you think this is? And also we can add to that list suicide. That's, that's a really big one. And that's something that I'm, I'm studying right now. All of these can be attributed in various mm -hmm. ways to minority stress. Certainly loneliness and depression are sort of natural consequences of minority stress. Substance abuse, which been a lot of research on that. I, I think it's a way of coping with, with minority stress and with loneliness as well. Sex is another way that you're feeling bad about yourself. Either you're seeking validation yeah. through sexual activity, and sometimes that may not be safer sex, and maybe mm -hmm. sex that you're engaging in while you're under the influence of substances, and that can impact your decision-making around sexual practices and safe sex. We also know that appearance concerns are more elevated in the LGBT community, especially among, among men, um, because there mm -hmm. is this focus on, on youthfulness and appearance. And so we, we see higher rates of eating disorders and body image dissatisfaction, muscle dysmorphia, rejection sensitivity, just based on appearance. And another issue we have is rumination. So that's sort of thinking about negative events and emotions over and over and over again. And I think one of the reasons that is more common in LGBT people is because 
they may not have other people to talk to about negative experiences they've had. And so they just sort of turn inward and start rehashing Mm -hmm. bad things that have happened to them over and over. And so it's so important to have people to talk to, people who can you can vent to and who can sort of put a put a bit of a break on on your thoughts so you don't sort of spiral out of control and get deeper and deeper into a negative thought pattern. And also uh, among older people, we see higher rates of cognitive impairment compared to heterosexual people, which is quite troubling. And I think, again, one of the reasons for that might be the minority stress and perhaps higher rates of loneliness, because both of those cause physical stress. And we know that physical stress uh, affects your brain, brain health. Mm -hmm. So how can we begin to start tackling this? Because there's obviously a lot of different factors that can affect the LGBTQ community and can lead to a huge number of issues. So again, like you said, there's these, there's three broad approaches. So the one of them is sort of directly reducing minority stress, the um, stigma and discrimination. Number two would be to help people cope with the negative impact of minority stress. And then also number three, helping to reduce uh, loneliness directly, or at least helping people increase their ability to cope with it. So for some people, loneliness will unfortunately be like sort of a very, very long-term thing. And they're, you know, unfortunately, and, you know, if we can find ways to increase people's ability to cope with it or take the edge off of it, that can have positive impacts on health. So interventions falling Mm -hmm. in these three categories have three different levels. So you can have interventions at a sort of structural societal level, interventions at an interpersonal level, and then interventions at the individual level. And I can talk a little bit about each one of these. At the structural level, so the top level, we have things that you would normally think of like anti-discrimination laws, same-sex uh, laws supporting same-sex marriage, um, affirmative spaces in schools, so the gay-straight alliances, LGBT groups in, in workplaces, which are becoming more common, um, and even things like just positive representation and role models of LGBT people in the media so that you can see positive images. So then we have at the uh, at the next level with interpersonal approaches, and in terms of reducing minority stress, um, we have programs to sort of help improve intergroup contact. So helping the uh, heterosexual people understand the experiences of sexual minority adults and learn how to empathize with their experiences and how their actions can make them feel bad. And we also have educational programs to reduce discrimination, parenting programs to help parents who have an LGBT child, helping them bond with their child and, and be more supportive sexual orientation, diversity, education in schools, workplaces, healthcare settings. We hear from a lot of older LGBT adults, they don't feel comfortable in healthcare settings because their doctors are not necessarily familiar with their history, what they've experienced as, as a, an older LGBT adult, what their unique needs are. And even things in some of our larger institutions like policing. And I, I'm really pleased that here in Vancouver, we have a very good relationship between police and the LGBT community. And there have been a lot of initiatives from the police to help build bridges between police and our community, because historically there hasn't been a good, good relationship. But one of the things we have is something called the Safe Place Program. Businesses sign up to be a safe place. So if there's a person who's feeling like they're in danger, uh, they can go to this business and, and 
take refuge there and police can be contacted if that's what they want. The department also released a video called Walk With Me, which is a transgender video. It's about the experiences of transgender people. And it's shown to police officers so that they can understand the needs of this community wow. and how to interact with them in a respectful mm -hmm. manner. And there's also a program they're running called Elder Pride, a monthly social gathering where members of the department talk with older LGBT people about various topics, sometimes related to safety, sometimes not. And it's just a really nice way to bond and to develop you know, more more positive relationship and to increase the likelihood that if something happens that they feel more comfortable to report issue to police. Also in Vancouver we have programs a program called Gay and Gray uh, and similar programs which are sort of support and discussion groups for older LGBT people. In terms of loneliness specifically we have you know, various interventions to help people improve social skills to identify sources of support. So often when we're feeling lonely we we have a very negative way of thinking about the world and everyone in our life and we can forget about the fact that there are supportive people in our lives and it's important to reach out to them when we're feeling really bad um learning ways to improve relationships we know with lgbt people they because of stigma they may have difficulty opening up and being intimate with their their partners so they sort of may avoid emotions and so there are interventions to help reduce this kind of avoidance um and i think also just teaching about um, loneliness in in school uh, which particularly at a younger age i think is really uh, important and providing uh, more supportive religious organizations because there are a lot of lgbt people who are religious but they don't they felt estranged from their church so if we can make churches more accepting and, and there are churches now that are quite accepting um and, and that's a positive development and then finally, we have the individual, um, more, more of the psychological interventions. And so, um, you know, for minority stress, that could be just identifying sources of minority stress and debunking negative stereotypes that you might you yourself might hold about about um, your LG, about LGBT people. Um, identifying sort of and understanding how minority stress can lead to depression and loneliness and substance abuse and unsafe sex. Um, think activating positive thoughts um, about yourself and your sexual orientation after you've had sort of a negative experience and learning how to seek support. Things like expressive writing have been found to be quite helpful. And things to improve self-efficacy, so just building your confidence so that uh, in whatever area you might excel at, and in the hopes that that confidence will translate to your, to your ability to cope with minority stress and loneliness. And then with loneliness itself, we have, as you know, various cognitive behavioral interventions to address the maladaptive thoughts that we see in loneliness and that negative spiral of thoughts. But questioning, you know, questioning social interactions, like if, if somebody is looking at you in the wrong way, is it because of your sexual orientation or is it just because maybe they're having a bad day? So just being aware of sort of how you're automatically interpreting ambiguous situations and then things like mindfulness so just trying to be more comfortable at least a little more relaxed when you're when you're feeling lonely so those are some of the individual level interventions something really important that you said is around education so education of loneliness itself because we don't talk about it enough so people may not even be aware initially that that's how they're feeling 
and then also education of minority stress and what that can feel like and what that can lead to to hopefully make more people be able to empathize with that and then also I think yeah then definitely the need for safe spaces where people can feel safe and feel free to meet people as well I was reading that safe spaces have kind of decreased especially since the pandemic like there's digital spaces but there aren't always as many actual physical spaces so I think that is definitely something that is important yes and we've seen like a even before the pandemic we were seeing a decline in all in this you know gay bars and clubs and you know one of the reasons for that is well everyone's using you know apps to meet people and and you know that can be positive but also be quite negative for a lot of people and and there are people who just like it you know apps are quite one-dimensional and there are many people miss just being able to meet people in person and a lot of people just don't feel comfortable with technology like older adults might not it might be quite foreign to them and just the apps themselves the environment can be quite can be quite negative especially for men where there is quite an appearance a focus on appearance there can be a lot of uh very easy to reject people and and if you're already sensitive to rejection being rejected you know just by by your looks can can really I mean, it stings for everyone, but I think it stings more for for LGBT people who are already sensitive to um, to rejection. So I'd like to see more more spaces and space physical spaces and spaces that aren't just about like oriented around sex and entertainment and music and but things like for mm-hmm. quieter people or the intellectual people. So reading clubs, writing clubs, discussion groups, gallery meetups, and, and things like that. Because a lot of the mainstream gay venues are, you know, it's dancing, it's music, it's drugs, it's drinking, it's, and that's not everyone's cup of tea. <laughs> Why do you think we're losing them? Well, I get it because of the um, move to, to digital. I think gentrification in some of our gay neighborhoods, mm-hmm. uh, it's becoming more, uh, they're, they're, becoming, they're getting redeveloped, it's becoming more expensive to live there. And so um, people are moving out the suburbs and so whatever LGBT social network they may have had, I mean, they may still have it, but it's harder to maintain relations when you're not sort of close, close to one another. And so, yeah, it's just the sort of the gradual disintegration of these spaces. And also some have argued just, we don't need the gay spaces as much because there is greater acceptance of LGBT people. And so they, they, you know, we don't need to sort of, rely on each other for support as much and, and have spaces where we can feel protected. And this may be true for some people, but others really do get a lot of support. And I noticed in my research, transgender people in particular derive a lot of support and support from their peers. And, and it's more protective, very protective for them in terms of loneliness. And so to lose these spaces and, and neighborhoods is quite unfortunate. Have you done any research in countries where it is illegal to be gay or outwardly expressed? your sexuality for ethical reasons i wasn't permitted to advertise my survey in countries where it's illegal because we were concerned that if somebody did the survey somebody found out that their child family member was doing the survey that it might harm them in some way Um, but we did have people from many different countries around the world where not necessarily illegal but where attitudes towards gay people may not be as positive as in some other countries and so we are looking at looking at this loneliness model, which uh, I've talked about, and we're trying to see, you know, are the relations between minority stress and loneliness and anxiety, are they stronger in countries that are less accepting of LGBT people? 
and I suppose if if it is illegal or if it is di- more difficult, then it's you're going to all of the different solutions that we've said are going to be even more difficult to find because you can't have openly safe spaces. So even online space, you know, like in in those countries, I mean, people will turn to the internet, but there's concern that internet activity is being monitored, and you have some of the apps and LGBT websites that are blocked, and so it's making it really hard for people to connect with peers. And some of them, even if they want to connect with the peers in their own country, they, they'd be afraid, afraid to do that because they worry what might happen to them if somebody finds out. So it is a real, a real challenge. It's very isolating. Yeah. And then you add a whole nother level of fear to that. When I was doing my research, I initially, um, I, when I, I was advertising in some countries that are, are not very pro-LGBT, and I was receiving some hateful messages from people uh, on Facebook. I did a lot of advertising through social media, and I received threatening comments from from people. People probably weren't LGBT, and they just saw happened to see the advertisement. And some of these were countries were in Europe and places you wouldn't expect. So it was quite quite troubling. And if that's the attitude in the country, then you can internalize that attitude, like you mentioned, and then that creates even more. And those people, the ones who internalize those attitudes, probably. So the ones that have internalized those attitudes probably are, are were less likely to participate in our in our research. Some of them may not even they don't afraid to um, um, identify themselves as LGBT, or they may not even be aware of themselves that they might be LGBT. They sort of block that from their mind, and so we you know, may not have heard about their their experiences although we did i did get quite a lot of people writing free form comments talking about their the negative experiences in, in their countries this is a big problem with research in this area you are reaching people who tend to be more out and who tend to be living in more liberal countries you've mentioned some of them already but what solutions do you see working that aim at specifically tackling loneliness amongst the LGBTQ community. So one of the I, I was sort of making a list in, in my in my head of some of the things that that I I like. So we already talked about the preserving our gay neighborhoods and spaces, but um, one something that I like and that and, and I'll speak a bit about my own own experiences and what I found helpful when I was growing up. I and mean, I, I faced a lot of stigma uh, when I was in school. Mm-hmm. Um, people bullied me quite a lot, and um, I was I was often harassed because of my uh, gender expression and, and people's implicit assumption that I must be gay um, because of that. And uh, that affected me quite a bit, particularly in elementary school. But as I moved into high school, um, I got involved in a lot of school activities and I started excelling in a lot of things. I was doing public speaking. I was writing for our local paper, writing articles about things happening in our in our school and I was running various organizations and I was sort of praised for that and I think af- and after a while people just sort of stopped focusing on my sexual orientation and they just saw me as someone you know doing all of this important stuff at school and so that was very uh, beneficial for me and so I think it's important for people to have opportunities to to have leadership roles and to excel um, whether it's academically or in sports or, or whatever they might be might be interested in and that a lot of it also builds your self-esteem and um but i i have noticed we, we've seen in the research sometimes in in among sexual minorities this can go a little too far 
And so people sort of overcompensate by feeling they have to be the best at everything. And, and sometimes they become perfectionistic as a result because they feel that in order to have approval, they need to, to excel in everything. And they're afraid of that if they don't, people will either you know, focus on their, on their um, sexual orientation. Because one of the reasons for um, participating in these things and, and achieving uh, in, in various areas is to deflect attention from your sexual orientation and then also to gain approval from other people. But this can go a little too far. And there are a couple of authors actually wrote about this. They called it the, the best little boy in the world phenomenon. They, they used boy because it was a research on, on gay men. Um, but they did find that minority stress increased the risk for, for this kind of overachievement in, in academic domains and other areas of their life. And there's also a wonderful book by Paul Downs called The Velvet Rage, where he talks about the shame associated with being gay and how that can lead to this, this desire to be perfect in all areas of your life and, and also to have the perfect partner and the perfect friends. And it's very stressful. I mean, it leads to very high expectations for yourself and also for other people. And of course, that can be a drag for other people if you're expecting them to to meet certain standards that they can't, that's going to strain relations and, and can increase loneliness. So again, you know, we want give, to give people opportunities to achieve, but you don't want to go overboard. Yeah, I just finished that book and Did it's you? so good. And it's true. It's if, if you get all your value from what other people think about you, the opinions of other people, that will in turn make you lonely as well because you're, you're not able to live a life authentically true to yourself. Yes, and I think that it's that your self-esteem is contingent on other people's opinions of you. I think that's the thing. And that's very stressful because people can remove their approval from you at any time if you no longer excel in a particular area. And so it is important to build that self-esteem and so that you feel good about yourself, even if you don't excel. Because most of us, you know, a lot of us don't, don't excel in anything in particular, and if you feel that you have to, I mean, that's very, very stressful. And just feeling at any time that that approval can be withdrawn. I love The Velvet Rage. It's, it's a great, it's a great book. So the other thing I just, we talked about earlier, just teaching people about loneliness, how to recognize that cycle of, of loneliness and how it can affect your thoughts. And I know when I give presentations on the cycle of loneliness, people find it quite eye-opening and they're like, okay, I can see now how things that happened to me lead to this and how I can get stuck in that cycle. And so I can sort of, when I'm feeling really bad, I can think about that and take a step back and, and reevaluate. Definitely, I think because then you can be aware of it and know that you're not alone in the way that you're feeling, which can be one of the loneliest feelings when you think that you are. If you learn about the symptoms of loneliness, then you can also learn that there are ways that you can mitigate them and get out of them them and then you can also find out about other people's experiences with loneliness I think all of those things actually help to make you feel less alone yes well, it, you feel like a weight has sort of been been lifted off and just to, uh, the more we talk about loneliness I think it's important because it reduces the stigma around it people are more willing to admit that they're suffering from depression than they are that they're suffering from loneliness because often there's this impression that if you're lonely, it's because there's something fundamentally wrong with you or, you know, oh, you don't have friends or you don't know how to make friends. Or people can be lonely for a multitude of reasons um, that have nothing to do with, with themselves. But I, like we talked about, it could be due to negative things happening, happening in their environments. And a lot of people feel lonely. They have 
quite a big social circle. They're partnered, they have friends, they're involved in the gay community, but they still feel quite lonely. Um, so it's not that they don't know how to, how to make friends or how to talk to people. There may be other, other things going on. But I, I do have some more practical solutions. And one of the ones I really like is John Cassiopo, who's sort of the loneliness guru who recently passed away, unfortunately. He wrote a wonderful book on loneliness called, I think it's called Loneliness. <laughs> the subtitle is Loneliness, Human Nature, and the Need for Social Connection. And it's a wonderful book that I often recommend for people. And he talks about sort of the evolutionary roots of loneliness and why we fall into a negative cycle of loneliness. In terms of responding to it, he provided an approach which is kind of like systematic desensitization is start slowly starting to get more comfortable with social interactions. And he sort of had a four-step approach and he calls it ease. The first part is E for extend yourself. For people who've become so afraid of talking to people because they've been isolating, and he suggests that they just go out and have small social interactions in safe places. So going and saying hello to your cashier, or to the to the mailman, or purpose here isn't to make friends. It's just to have a small interaction to, to notice that, uh, you know, when you talk to people, usually they will respond positively to you. You can also lift your mood just to have somebody say hello to you and, and acknowledge your existence. And there's actually a lot of research on the power of these small, positive social interactions. And his next step was S for selection, so select carefully. So often when we're lonely, we want social connection and we'll try to find it anywhere, but it may not be the most appropriate for us. So you want to find people and groups and activities that you actually enjoy and people that you are compatible with. And really important like to, to find activities that you also enjoy for their own sake, because you can join a group or an activity and it may take quite a while for you to actually meet new people because relationships take time, right? But if you have an activity or something you enjoy doing week after week, you increase the chance that you're going to see the same people over and over and actually develop a relationship with them. He also, I forgot A, which is action plan. Uh, mm -hmm. So having a, a sort of a set schedule of activities. So sort of forcing yourself to do things on a weekly basis, just so that you don't get discouraged. And so you have more opportunities to meet people. Certainly when we're feeling very, very lonely, there is that tendency not to want to get out of the house and connect with people, but you really need to do that. You need to get out there and start being more comfortable with people. And then finally, he had E for expect the best. So again, knowing how loneliness affects the way you think about yourself and other people. And this was sort of his top piece of advice. And I really like it. You know, like, don't just jump into a new social activity head first. Sort of gradually ease your way back into social life. One of the things he recommends as well is helping other people. You know, when we're feeling lonely, we're very focused on ourselves, but we need to be more focused on other people. First, because this takes your mind off of yourself and your, your own problems and your own loneliness, as you mentioned. But there's also sort of the benefits of the helper's high. You, know, you feel good helping other people and it just builds your self-esteem. I personally recommend that people don't put all their eggs in one basket and just focus on people from one particular community or focus on meeting people just online. Try to branch out. You never know where you will meet someone. And also rekindling old relationships. We often forget, and I notice this with men in particular, that there are people in their life that they may have had friendships with before and the friend, they've let the friendship sort of die on the vine. And I think it is important for people to actually make a list of people they may have lost touch with and get back in touch 
with those people. So like rather than starting from scratch and meeting new people, sort of rekindle the relationships you may have already had. I also highly recommend that people think about standards they have for their romantic partners and, and ask themselves, you know, does the person need to be the absolute best or can I, is, is good enough, good enough? And, and we do see this with loneliness that people often have very high standards and expectations and most people don't meet those standards and expectations, whether it be for appearance or financial means or, or whatever. So sort of moderating those standards, developing more comfort in being alone and also asking yourself if there are ways that you can provide for yourself what you are hoping other people would provide for you, whatever that might be, support, understanding, companionship, entertainment. I also find it's very helpful to cultivate positive emotions. So when you're feeling really bad, just do things that make, make you feel better, whatever that might be, whatever you enjoy, just to take the edge off the loneliness. And also reminiscing about past relationships. This is one of the things that can be very helpful people who suffer from minority stress. So when you've had a stressful experience, think about people in your life who've been accepting. Think about relationships you've had that have been supportive. This can counteract this tendency to think really negatively about yourself and other people. And one thing that I really want to emphasize is something very basic, which most of us forget about, and that's sleep. We know that Loneliness makes it more difficult to sleep, but we also know that sleep problems can increase the risk for, for isolation and loneliness. And we also know LGBT people have more sleep problems compared to the general population. And I think this is, again, because of the minority stress. And this is particularly problematic because sleep makes us more irritable and makes us have more negative thoughts about ourselves and other people. And so if you're experiencing minority stress, and you're losing sleep, that's sort of now increasing the likelihood that you may interpret social situations in a negative way. And that's just going to reinforce the cycle of loneliness. So I tell people, whatever you can do to improve your sleep is critical. It's just amazing what a good night's sleep will do for your perspective on life. It's true. I think it starts with being kind to yourself. Sleep, exercise, like eat well, do things that make you feel good. Because sometimes I think when you can feel really lonely and then you can get into quite a spiral, you end up stopping doing the things that will make you feel even just on an even keel. I had a talk, actually, the last episode was with Tansy Dalman, who's a forest bathing coach. And um, she mentioned going on walks in nature. Those things can be kind of where I guess you could start and then slowly easing into social interactions. I, I like the sound of that approach, the ease. Mm-hmm because it is hard if you're feeling really isolated to even want to leave the house sometimes like that can feel really scary this has been so insightful interesting there's so many more questions i want to ask you but we've run out of time we have a closing tradition on this podcast and we end on two questions so the first one is when did you last feel lonely um probably (laughs) Probably last night I was uh, working on my um, dissertation, which, you know, is very solitary work. And I'm a, I'm a night owl, so I'm often up, up late at night doing work and by myself and I'm just reading and, and editing. And that can make me feel a little lonely. And then also I notice, like when I'm under stress, when I have a deadline, when, when something, when things are piling up, I find myself feeling more lonely than usual. And I think it's just because when I'm 
under stress, and I, I hear this from other people too, they so they get a little panicky. And the natural our natural instinct when we're feeling stress is to reach out to to other people for support. But if you're doing work that where it's, it's quite solitary and you don't have the opportunity for connection, you're just basically stuck with yourself. And so that can make you feel quite, quite lonely. Yeah, so those are the, the two, two experiences. And again, as I, we talked about earlier, certain times when I use social media, I can feel a little, feel a little lonely because I see everybody has such an active social life and my, mine is hardly, mine pales in comparison to that. And it can, uh, yeah, so that, that social, social comparison, which I try to resist, but um, it, it's a human thing. And My friend gave me a good piece of advice, though, about that. She said no one's going to upload the picture of them crying on their own in a room. It's just you upload the best bits of your life. This is very true. Although on TikTok, they might. I am seeing, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I've seen more and more people are using the internet to to be much more open and, and expressive of things that are upsetting them. I've just started following, like, monks and people who I'm inspired by and positive I don't know life coaches on Instagram so now my feed is just loads of like quotes and (laughs) inspirational advice and it's a lot nicer than I actually to be honest with you I I don't look at the feed on any of my social media apps I just I I just find it too overwhelming so I just use social media to post Mm -hmm. things and I I actually don't like I'm not actually very social on I'm not participating in the social part of social media Um, Well, final question. I know we've touched quite a lot a lot on this, but what piece of advice would you give to someone experiencing loneliness? Well, first of all, reminding yourself that you're not alone. It doesn't mean that there's something wrong with you. Understanding how loneliness can make things worse and change how you see yourself and other people. And again, that the easing gradually back into social life and even when that's not possible, just doing things to make you feel better about yourself. So like the self-care that we talked about, um, doing things that you enjoy that boost your mood and sort of take the edge off of, off of loneliness. And sometimes also, and I found this quite helpful, I often will do, like if I have a lot of reading to do or marking or writing or whatever, I'll do it in a coffee shop or I'll sit outside my building and do it. And I'm just that way, I'm around other people. I'm not interacting with them. I'm not, I may if they say hi to me or whatever, but there's just a certain comfort in being around other people. And I know John Cassiopo talked about this. People have a nat- usually have a natural sort of calming influence. It's harder to, when you're around other people, to sulk and to crawl into bed and to isolate yourself. You just kind of, and there's a, just a comfort with there's people around and there's no pressure there. You don't need to talk to people. You're just, you know, you're doing your work. You're in a coffee shop. If you want to talk to people, you can, uh, but there's no pressure. And so it's sort of a, a passive way of getting some of your social needs met. And it can be enough to take the edge off a little bit. You might not meet anyone, but you won't feel as horrible as you do when you're just isolating yourself. Thank you so much for this conversation. I really, it's been so interesting and insightful and I really hope that it helps people suffering from loneliness. So I'm going to put links to your articles and your research in the show notes on the campaign to end loneliness. So if people want to find out more, they can check those out too. But thank you so, so much for your time today. 
Thank you. This was a pleasure. And I'm so glad for what Campaign Town Loneliness does. 